0: You're going to remember this every day for the rest of your life. If you want to get to a goal, if you want to get to your dream, you got to focus on all the little steps. You have to put in your time. You have to be patient and you have to enjoy the process. Whatever you're doing now, whatever you want to be great at, whatever you want to be special at, I'm sure you may be already be good at it. But to be extraordinary, you have to do extra. I firmly believe that we are all here for a very specific reason, to do something truly extraordinary. But what are you going to do to get there?
1: Welcome to another episode of the Megna Method Podcast. Today, we are extremely excited to have on the show Coach Brett Bartholomew. Coach Brett is a strength and conditioning coach, performance consultant, adjunct professor, keynote speaker, and author. His latest book, Conscious Coaching, The Art and Science of Building Buy-In, is an international bestseller and is ranked in the Amazon Top 100 Books Overall for 2017. Besides being a walking database of knowledge, Coach Brett is just an awesome human being. What we discuss today can relate to any field, or better yet, any life. You'll be sure to walk away having learned something new. And once again, today's episode of the Magna Method podcast is being brought to you by No Foods. Folks, you are what you eat. So if you want to be healthy and clean, then head over to nofoods.com. That's K-N-O-W Foods.com and get yourself some good wholesome eats. And be sure to use the code Magna10. That's M-E-G-N-A 10 and get 10% off your order. And now on to another great episode of the Magna Method.
0: You know, what I liked about your book, was it wasn't the level one type of things. It was more, you know, uh, the deeper uh, breaking down the different behaviors and the personality types of the people that you're working with and be able, being able to identify them. So when, when, can you just briefly hit on, um, I don't want to go into a ton of your history because we'd be here all day, which is a great credit to you because you have a long resume, but I'd like to get into your Training for yourself, Coach Brett, and, and how you started to train yourself, and then you started to do more research, and what led you down the road to work on conscious coaching and create it.
2: So, so when you say training myself, do you mean the physical training or training myself from a behavioral? kind of all the behavioral research I'm doing now.
0: Well, I'm talking about training yourself physically, but because I know that it took you to almost a dark place, if you will, lack of a better term, and then you came out of that, and it kind of led you to the behavioral side. Is that correct or incorrect?
2: Sure, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I started off, you know, much like, and the book goes in great detail on this, but started off much like many of us, just very passionate about the human body, its potential, uh, getting stronger getting more fit you know I played baseball and football growing up and uh, so you know at 15 I, you know, I didn't really know anything about training but as a teenager even earlier than 15 you know I'd read my men my dad's men's health magazines muscle and fitness whatever I could find and you know you just start doing stuff right you start going to the gym you start doing push ups and sit ups every night um, it just started to be something with me where you know I have, I have parents that are, are pretty driven folks they both grew up extremely poor Um, my dad grew up without a father you know my mom had some interesting family dynamics in her own in her own right Um, so you know I just I grew up watching two people that were really dedicated and and went for things And so that's kind of how I approach everything and sometimes like you said virtue can become a vice Uh, so started training that slowly became an obsession especially during a time in high school where a lot of my friends transitioned into doing drugs uh, my parents were getting a divorce. You know, I kind of looked for an outlet. My outlet was training. The irony is training became a drug. Um, and at the time, I didn't know enough about the supporting uh, nutrition uh, aspects that were really well-researched in the literature. I mean, this was, this was late 90s, early 2000s when low-fat, low-carb were both in vogue. So I did both, thinking that I'd get the benefits of both. And, you know, I wasn't classically trained in any of that. Um, And so, yeah, eventually it was hospitalized and and institutionalized in a place in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where daily you work with a host of nutritionists, doctors, registered nurses, uh, psychologists, um, uh, and, and a variety of folks in those fields. And you try to learn just a little bit more about the behavior side, right? Like what got you in here? What led to that decision making? What did you feel when you were doing that? And, you know, so it's funny, even though I don't have a PhD in in psychology or behavioral science or anything I lived it you know I spent a year of my life in this hospital right. going to every different therapist and psychologist it was part of their integrated program and methodology so that that is a lot of like the the very early days underpinnings of my interest in behavior because of course that that made me want to go uh not only more in depth on the the physical sciences but uh the, the behavioral piece as well
0: mm-hmm. and and you've been doing this long time. How, how many years have you been instructing? Just, we want to familiarize, um, the audience a little bit. How many years, uh, have you been instructing, coaching and, um, uh, training and working with athletes or everyday people?
3: 13
0: years. 13 years. And in the 13 years, if, you know, I speak, um, from my personal experience, I don't think there was ever a aha moment, but There were several moments that I realized I really have to become somewhat of a chameleon type coach and understand the different personality types I'm working with and understand who they are and um, figure out a way to best fit my coaching style to them, not them to me, so to speak. Do you remember a specific moment in regards to your career path?
2: Well, as like you said, you know, each moment is not necessarily distinct, although there can be distinct moments. It's more of the common connections within that ongoing narrative. So for sure there, I mean, in terms of when I started really getting into the behavioral piece, I mean, one was, was being hospitalized. I mean, and seeing how much, you know, there are so many folks out there with both the wrong information, but even with the right information that don't know how to apply it. Um, that that narrative was continued during a time where I worked at a company that, hosted a lot of um, mentorships and apprenticeships. You'd get coaches that came in and learned a tremendous amount of theory. I mean, uh, strength coaches, we'd even dive into Abhijev and and some of the Russian-based literature. From a movement standpoint, we'd get really deep into motor learning, which is, that's what my master's degree is in. Um, But then when we'd get to the applied section of the course, people really struggled. And these weren't new coaches all the time, right? You had some folks that were very highly regarded coaches from different parts of the world, the United States, whatever, and they'd come in and they'd struggle. And it just kind of dawns on you that you know, it's great that we have all the technology booming right now that we do and all the sports science analytics, um, but we still have to remember that by definition, coaching is a social inter- interpersonal kind of connection mm-hmm. piece there. And I think for the longest time it really bugged me that a lot of that stuff had been touched on to a degree, but in very kind of superficial leadership oriented, be positive, respect them and love them up kind of way, as opposed to just looking at it from a pragmatic sense, coaching mm-hmm. is understanding human nature, uh, the good, the bad, the indifferent. And it's also understanding how to influence and persuade whether people like those terms or not, you know, there's, there's great researchers out there like Robert Cialdini who's a professor emeritus at Arizona state that he always he studies is influence and persuasion. And if you think as a coach, that's not part of your job, then, you know, you're, I think you're confused, and so that's that's really what my online course is coming out March seventh, and all these other things you're hoping to educate more more folks on.
0: Uh, I wanted, to, I definitely want to talk more on the, about the online course in, or, or what you're uh, allowed to give us thus far. But um, I sure. I I'd like to, you know, what what Coach Brett just said is so powerful in, in that, you know, I I meet so many highly intelligent people, and and they're just. You know they have so much knowledge and so many years of experience, and then I see them in the field or working with an athlete, working with them with a client, and they struggle to apply the knowledge. Or uh, as you state, and I'd like to talk about it, uh, the buy-in, it's why do you think it is? Why do you think this happens, Coach Brett, that these people are so skillful and so knowledgeable and high, they have high intellect, but they, they lack the social skills? Why do they just shy away from that. I'm so interested in hearing your thoughts on this.
2: Well, I think, I mean, this is multifactorial, so I'm not going to sit here and assume that, you know, I have the end all be all answer. But I think one part that plays a critical role is just examine coach education, Mark. You know, coach education, especially from a strength and conditioning standpoint, it prepares us to know the physiological underpinnings. It prepares us to understand a bit more about biomechanics. It prepares us to know about you know, ACSM guidelines and things like that or hypertrophy rep ranges um, or the necessary intensities for, you know, neuromuscular adaptations at, at high loads. But how many folks in our field are really given any kind of conflict resolution, influence, persuasion, crash course in human nature? I mean, I was just at a conference in North Dakota and I asked an audience of about 120 of that and two people raised their hand and said that they've had any kind of social dynamics education as it pertained to sport coaching or anything like that. The rest, the rest maybe got your typical undergrad course about Freud and BF Skinner and you know, all that. But you know, I I think coach development hasn't really done a great job of taking this stuff and making it applicable. There's, there's for sure frameworks out there that have been discussed in the literature, but all those papers in the same way, it says more research is needed in terms of making this applicable in the dynamic chaotic settings in which coach operates so what good is a framework you know if there's no applied part of that and so I think that's the biggest piece I also think listen you know there's a big debate right now is you know are some people just better at it than others the social dynamics without without question but some people are also better at mathematics than others and that does not stop us from trying to enhance those skills Mm -hmm. so you know i i definitely think it needs to be taught i don't think it's been something that's been prioritized within the coach education uh side of things an applied
0: setting. right I, I, do you do you feel like times are now uh changing drastically changing in in the the strength and conditioning coaches coaches in general trainers they're understanding that uh becoming um adverse in the social setting or even like self-development like this is a priority and this needs to be uh conquered or taken on, so to speak? Do you think it's a it's it's a primary target now? It's not ignored the way it used to be?
2: Yeah, I think I think I still think it's very much in its infancy. You know, hopefully hopefully my book helped stir a little bit more discussion around that. And again there's there's lots of other folks in the academic setting doing great work on that standpoint as well. But the goal with the book was to make it widely applicable and a balance of science plus stories. Because as you know, what percentage of the population reads academic journals, mm-hmm. right? Like you, it's, it's a very small percentage of the population. And so, you know, I, I know a lot of times academics tend to say, you know, there's people that write books that are popularizers. And I, I, you know, and, and Malcolm Gladwell is somebody that often gets accused of being that. And Here's the thing. Like if you're an educator, your job should be to give, to, to provide as many research backed ideas for enhancing whatever outcome you're aiming at enhancing to as many people as you can. I don't really believe in, Oh, I'm here to help people. So let me communicate in a silo just because this is a more distinguished way in presenting that information. Mm -hmm. Who's to judge that, you know, and then how are you disseminating it? And so, you know, I'd, I'd like to think it's a little bit more of a topic now. The thing that makes me a little weary though, Mark, is what I've seen is I've seen some people start to like promote this message of just warmth and empathy, which that's nice. And that's part of the process, but that's not, that's not what the art of coaching in and of itself is about. The art of coaching is social science driven and it's every bit of a science as as anything else. Like being empathetic isn't going to work for every athlete. It's got many drawbacks as well. So.
0: Right. I think the, the, the empathetic side, and I've been guilty of that is I just think that that may be one of the most lacking. That's why we may see it highlighted nowadays.
2: Sure. Yeah, Um, no question. And it's not wrong. None of it's wrong. It's just people have to understand the balance. It's kind of like if you and I, Mark, we're talking about training right now and all we talked about was everything towards, you know, the neuromuscular adaptation side of things, velocity based training mm-hmm. or heavy strength training. Mm-hmm. And we, ever, we never talked about benefits of strength, endurance, or hypertrophy. When you're talking about the art of coaching, you have to talk about every side of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to talk about, cause there's research out there that suggests that actually the exact opposite of uh, empathy, more more traits related to narcissism, Machiavellianism, and even psychopathy are inherent in really effective coaches. Oh yeah. So there's there's a balance out there, as you know.
0: Right, and uh, you know um, a good friend of mine always says it's not that it's wrong; it's just incomplete, and you need to look at all sides, as you stated heavily.
2: That's perfect. Yeah, you stated that perfectly.
0: Um, so, can you bring us back to uh, a time when, when you really were you were working with an athlete and you were just not connecting, not making that connection? And this can dovetail us nicely into the, uh, the the athlete connection, the trainer, strength coach, athlete, or client connection. And you just really had to figure it out, and you realized what you were doing. And, and once again, for the people listening, this is all in the book. And if you haven't read the book. Uh, You know, I don't know why, but I'm going to give you a pass. You really need to check the book out, Conscious Coaching. It's incredible. Uh, I've been through it a few times now. I take notes in it. Um, Just check it out. But can you speak to a time where you weren't connecting and you you figured out a way to connect and you realized you were whiffing?
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, I'll, I'll give a recent example. So I just moved out to Atlanta about a year ago. And predominantly prior to this, all my coaching had been done in the southwest or the west coast so i'm kind of getting acclimated to this area as are some of the athletes who maybe had heard of my work before but never worked with me directly um so you know i'm working with a group of nfl guys in the offseason right now which is my predominant population and there was one guy we've never worked together um he had reached out because he was getting ripped off by uh a coach in the area just felt like you know what he was paying versus what he was getting I, i guess the guy was hooking him up to basically uh well, I don't need to get into detail, but just using one method and basically using that method by itself for 90 minutes, mm-hmm. as opposed to doing any kind of real physical preparation training. And the guy was just kind of trying to sell him on that. Mm-hmm. So he said, "Listen, you know, I, I've been ripped off before. I've had some issues. You know, whatever. I'm just looking for for some no nonsense coaching." And I said, "Fine, let's get rolling." So you know, we go through everything: medical history, waiver questionnaire. We start out, and then it comes time, you know, and you've got to have that uncomfortable conversation about like hey man you know like if you're liking the training uh that's great just let me know do you want to sign up for you know a day a week a month what have you mm-hmm. and once it started to be something payment related which unfortunately is a reality in the private sector right like i'm not a salaried professional i'm self-employed right like i coach right. by myself um so the you know these guys you know payments a part of it no matter how much we love coaching uh he immediately started to withdraw a little bit and understandably so it's not comfortable and as a coach. You never want to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, simply put, I could sit there and try to MacGyver it all day, but I just reached out to a mutual connection and said, hey, you know, what's the best way to approach this? He said he's been ripped off in the past. You know, I certainly don't want him to, you know, I don't want money to be an uncomfortable topic, but at the same time, like, it's something we've got to deal with, right? And that coach just gave me a little bit of background. So, you know, the the biggest thing I did there was just take my time with the athlete. He wasn't going anywhere. He was enjoying the training. Every now and then, you roll the dice. Somebody could enjoy the training and split, and whoops, you're out some money. Um, but coaches don't do it for the money anyway. Um, and just you know, by giving it a week, giving it a week or two, and then just say, approaching them and say, "Hey, guys, really transparently, this is how I provide for my family." Mm-hmm. And much as you guys wouldn't step on that football field without a contract, like I've, we've got to lock these things in. Right. And once I put that in, once I put that in their terminology, and this is just one example. But once I put that in their terminology, they were able to look at it and be like, yeah, I guess that's true. You yeah. know, and so it's a part of what I talk about in the book. Like, you have to research, relate, and reframe. Right. Research means get information about that individual. Like, what, what were kind of the preceding events that led to you guys coming together or the interaction in general. Right. Right? Relate is now offering up some information of your own. And for a coach struggling to connect with somebody that could be talking about your own athletic career, It could be talking about an injury you've had. It could be anything that's relevant to the topic in which you guys are kind of struggling with. Or you could even just take something out and talk about a favorite movie or music and kind of drop their guard, so to speak. Right. So that, you know, every single thing isn't like 50 questions. Right. After that, reframing just means taking the information they gave you and then the information you gave them. And not only that, but how they responded to it and crafting it in kind of a nice package where. Anything that you present to them later on, whether it's uh, something that you're doing in the program, whether it's a change in the schedule, whether it's um, something they're doing with their speed development that day, make it relevant to their goals and their experiences and what they told you. Make it relevant to what they talked about. And so it's it's periodizing for people. You know, all these guys hate heavy squats, at least they do right now. I'm making them do heavy pause squats. But when I help them understand what role that plays in and their ability to accelerate off the line and even decelerate, mm-hmm. all of a sudden that takes on a little different meaning, right? right. That's a pure example there.
0: Uh, wonderful, thank you very much. Makes a lot of sense, and I'm sure that'll touch a lot of uh, people in the, our, our local community over here who are, you know, trainers and, and, and working with people and trying to find their language. Could you speak to a time coach when, you know, you're, you're so you do a lot of mentorship. A lot of people are learning from Coach Brett. Um, I know you. There's countless people who reach out to you, or people that are, you know, um, colleagues. Was there ever a time when someone just, you know, said, "Hey, Coach, I, I really don't want to train or work with this person. It's a real struggle." Um, what I mean is, I've had people on my team, my staff. They're amazing people. They give their whole heart, and it just becomes exhausting. They may be working with an energy drainer or energy vampire type person. And, you know, I try to advise them, you kind of got to work through the rough spots. I know this person might be a lot of work, um, but, you know, training someone, coaching them, and just giving them a workout is a very different thing. What advice would you give to that person who may want to dump a client because they require a little bit more energy?
2: I think that those are the people that you have to learn to love. Mm -hmm. You know, like I I, I personally, I'm at a point in my career where I, I enjoy working with some difficult athletes because that's... That's your job as a coach, you're not, you didn't get in this to coach robots, did you? You know, and I think I think a lot of people just look at that immediately as, oh, it's a lack of respect. I wouldn't be so quick to say that. Like a lot of times, people are just trying to figure things out, they're asking questions, they're not sure, and be honest. I mean, if you and I weren't in this field, Mark, like, and, and we went to somebody for training, would you not be a little bit inherently skeptical about what anybody tells you, given all the crap that's out there today?
0: Right, of course, of course.
2: You know, and so, you know, listen, like people always wonder, they always ask, how do you work with this person? Or how do you work with that person? Or how do I get to this? Like you do it by doing a good job with every person that you coach. There's no kind of end goal. And it's certainly not luck. You know, like, there's you know, like luck just stands for <laughs> laboring under consistency and knowledge. Like if you just stay the course, and you try to educate yourself, and you're willing to deal with some of those circumstances, and and uh you've got to people are like puzzles. That's the fun part of it, right? Like I've had athletes, especially fighters, that I didn't connect with for the first five or six weeks. And then inevitably, they drop their guard. Like, everybody's got shit in their lives. So, you know, for you to say, well, they're difficult with me, well, maybe they have a right to be. Do you know anything about this person's history or their experiences with training? And, and you know, you've got to dive in a little bit. I, I just look at our job a little bit more like, to a degree, you're, you're a bit of a profiler, and you've got to be forensic in your approach. You can't get so caught up in the moment two interactions or even a month of interactions you've got to kind of be in it for the long haul otherwise i think you're gonna have a lot of trouble i mean how do my question to those listeners that struggle with that is what do you think sport coaches do when they've got to work with difficult athletes throughout an entire season what do you think an olympic coach does when they've got a four-year when they've got a sprinter they're getting ready for the next summer olympics and he's kind of a pain in the butt but he's you know that country's best hope you think they just dump him? you know that that's that's right. part of our skill set, and that's why we've got to learn conflict management.
0: I, I, I absolutely, am. so well said, Coach. Thank you very much. I, I think that people don't understand that you don't have the uh, ability or the leeway to cut every single person from your roster. It just doesn't work like that, <laughs> you know. And the good coaches right. understand how to work with people. As long as there's a, uh, you know, you're not they're not mistake repeaters. You give them the lesson, and you say, Hey, this is how I roll. This is the way it works, and if you have a problem with that, I really want to hear your side of it. You don't have to agree with them as long as you see value in the things that they're saying and understand why they're saying them. Um, yep. So where 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 are you right now? You're working with uh, about roughly how many athletes do you work with on a day-to-day basis?
2: Uh, it depends on the time of year. and My, my busiest period is generally late January through July. Uh, where I'll typically see anywhere from 25 to 35 athletes in the NFL Mm offseason. I used to get caught up trying to chase numbers a bit more. There was a year in 2015 where I was part of a company and we had about 75 NFL guys come through and that was just one group. And then you'd have six more groups after that. Um, Then you start realizing a little bit that more is not always better. And, you know, you go from, this is more for young strength coaches, but I just felt like, man, if I could be the guy that all of, You know, name your sport. Athletes go see that would be awesome, but you have to be careful what you wish for because you start getting people that may come to you because they've heard this or that, but they may not be the right fit. You know, so it wasn't uncommon that we'd have a group of seasoned veterans, guys that have been in the league three, five, eight years, but then all of a sudden you may get a rookie that had a great season but was a little bit toxic to that culture. Mm -hmm. You know, and all of a sudden like they're a distraction to the group, and now you're saying, all right. Do I split the groups up? So I'm trying to make everything I do a little bit tighter right now. I mean, I, you know, for me, I still struggle, like, with one-on-one stuff. Um, it's, not, it's not quite as engaging to me as bigger groups, uh, unless I'm working with fighters or a member of the military that's coming back from, excuse me, some kind of issue, and, and fighters specifically as they're getting ready for fight prep. Um, but team sport athletes, I prefer to keep in at least groups of, of five or more. And uh, so that's my predominant population. Uh, baseball is still in there as well. And then the other two would be combat sports and military. So those are kind of my four collective total. Mm-hmm. Uh, it dies down a little bit for me in late August and September. as every major sport tends to go in season. And that's a lot of when I'll do my international travel and, and what have you. But even that can be quite a bit of coaching, as I'm sure you know. Like last last December, I was in Shanghai for a week. And there were about 70 coaches that wanted to go through speed, plyometrics, and, and and all these different practical sessions. And though it's enticing to say, well, coaching isn't speaking, it's not the same thing. And speaking isn't coaching. Anytime you're trying to convey knowledge or information and lead people in an orchestrated effort, that's, that's coaching.
3: Yeah, um, yeah. That's, so a, that's a great I, I'm, quote. I'm always,
2: coaching in, wow. I'm always coaching in one way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, whether it's, whether it's here with my steady groups or when I go abroad to do some education. I mm-hmm. wish I could remember that quote. I don't say many sticky things
0: oh, yeah. very often. No, so you no, have to send
2: that. You have to send that to me. No, I'm <laughs>
0: definitely going to send it to you. That was great. Um, so, you know, working with uh, the athletes, I'm sure it can become, um, you know, you obviously have long days. Have you ever had to, you know, uh, terminate a relationship or a client because it was just something that, maybe cross the line, or you just like, I, I can't work with this person anymore because they're they're taxing, and then they're with, they're taking from the group, right?
3: Yeah, you're asking, that's a
2: question that I think needs to get asked more, and I don't think it's been asked to me ever on any podcast, so thanks for asking that. Yeah, without, without question, I mean, there was a, a circumstance where I had somebody that was very well-known tell me that I needed to cater to their schedule, and it was more of cater as opposed to adapt, And when I, you know, basically gave them the reason why I couldn't, which was an actual reason. I mean, at the time I was co-owner of a business, my coaching load was filled throughout the day. You know, I'd just gotten married, so I wasn't going to sacrifice my weekends and start my marriage off like that. Mm -hmm. And I just said, Hey man, you know, like, I'm sorry, I can't accommodate that. And I remember he pointed at me right in the chest, right in the chest and goes, you need me. And I said, excuse me. And he said, you need my brand. Like you need me for your brand. And what he was insinuating is that he was a well-known enough athlete that just working with him uh, was going to be good enough for my career that I should cater to that. Wow. And that's something that, you know, I, I'm from the Midwest, I'm from Nebraska, and we're respectful people, but we also don't really take shit. You know?
3: yeah.
2: So that was something that, like, I, I just couldn't jive with that. And I said, you know what, man, I don't think we're a good fit. And I'll, I I won't lie, I hope this is helpful for your listeners there's times where that's been nerve wracking to me. Cause I do know, I mean, that was a superstar
3: athlete and
2: it would have been good for people to know that I trained them. But the, it, that's not the thing. Like you are not the athletes you train. Like mm-hmm. somebody out there right now is one of the best coaches in the world. And they're training baby boomers and youth athletes.
3: Mm-hmm. You know, there's
2: this myth out there that because somebody trains NFL or Olympic athletes or this and this, that they're the top of the top. Like you shouldn't choose your clients based on notoriety. Like, Choose them because they're the right fit. If I open a gym here in Atlanta, you know, I'd love to have a group of athletes and general pop that both just want to get after it and are focused. Like, I don't really give it, earlier in my career, I'd care about that stuff. But now it's like coaching, coaching. Like, come work, create the environment, and let's roll.
0: Conversely, I, think, I mean, uh, or not conversely, but to your point, I think that You actually learn most of your hard lessons through uh, general pop, you know, in in regular everyday people. Like you, I learned some of my most valuable, valuable coaching moments through everyday people because professional athletes work very hard. But you know, where I came up in in the field, everyone wants to coach professional athletes. They don't realize that you know the salt of everything comes when you work with an everyday person and, and the value and how rewarding it is. And there's some great rewarding moments for professional athletes as well. But I think people second guess that way too much, really.
2: Yeah, 100%. And it's easy to do. I mean, I I posted this on, I'm not as active on Twitter anymore, but I posted this on Twitter a while ago. I really do think it's an issue that, like, the majority of coaches, strength coaches, are told in some way, shape, or form that if you're not coaching at the pro level or a major D1 level, or if there's, you know, if there's personal trainers listening at some huge club, then you're not somebody. And I think that that's pretty dangerous. Again, you look at, you look at pioneers, guys like Vern Gambetta, like I'm pretty sure Vern still coaches people, I think he coaches out of his house or maybe his garage right now. And I'd be lying if I didn't, I'd be lying if I told people, listen, if if at the end of the day, like my goal is in my 50s or 60s, I would love to own like a decent plot of land out here in Georgia or wherever else. I'd like to have a shed outside that's about 3,500 square feet. I'd like to have some platforms, some weight equipment, a boxing gym and I'd like to slap just a sticker on it that says the shed and if I have my way I'll invite a certain number of athletes and people throughout the year to come train and that'll be that you know and and how funny that is from my original goal where at you know 18 I wanted to open up this huge facility that was this performance <laughs> mecca and all this and, and what you see is like when you open up resort like places like that it actually can do the opposite for your clients. Like it can start to make them feel a little bit, it almost like ceases to remind them of like what they're capable of and who they are. And I'm not saying like you need to go complete like grunge, right. but it just should feel more like a barber shop than anything else. And that's always right. my goal.
0: And that's been that's certainly been one of our issues uh, at Anatomy. We have a very special place filled with an incredible team and an incredible community, but You know, we really have to make sure that we keep a tight circle and that we hone everyone in and and have everyone understand that what we have here is uh, a culture, that you're a part of something, you're a part of something special, and we're here for each other. And it's just a general population facility. But, you know, sometimes if it it has the perception that it's too fancy or too upscale, you kind of lose the message. You have to work twice as hard because a lot of people that could be intimidating that could uh make people insecure it could give off the wrong message when that's really not what we are we just wanted to create a wonderful package in a way that uh people appreciate being at a certain place in a certain environment and giving them a special place to train so
2: yeah a hundred percent um yeah
0: but i like that uh if you ever have the shed i'd love to go out there and uh work with you out there on the ranch Would be perfect. <laughs>
2: yeah. Hey, you're welcome. You're welcome anytime. I'm, right now I kind of have this shed. If anybody follows me on, on my Instagram, you know, I, I'm not that exciting, but I do post a lot of like just my garage gym training sessions because, you know, it's kind of like your therapy and I can kind of isolate myself oh, yes. and just have some fun. Oh, yes. And so you, know, I have this shed 1.0 in that, you know, my wife and I are about to move to a new house and the number one thing I worry about is the garage gym. Cause it's where you experiment. It's where you have some fun and and all irony. I've even had some athletes now saying, Hey man, like would you ever let me come train at your house? I'd love that. Come on out. You know? And so I just think young and you said it Mark, so I don't want to belabor it, but anybody listening, like, please like understand that there are a lot of paths to take and your path is going to change. Like I'm still finding mine. Like I'm somebody that very much loved the team environment. I could see myself doing that again in the future. And I love the private environment. There's great things about that. Like, just find find where you fit at the time, and don't get caught chasing a goal. Because that, I don't think that message is spread enough from a coaching standpoint. I think it's an important one.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Coach Brett, if you were to, uh, if you're mentoring a young person or someone just uh, new to the field, and they really needed to work on their, I would say social game or their social skills, or just placing themselves in those environments where they can work on, you know their everyday language or the language they use with each person what would you suggest for that person to bring them up to speed and giving them as much experience as possible maybe obviously an internship but what else would you suggest
3: sure
2: two things and i'll give an underlying umbrella here right so understand that like nature abhors a vacuum and so does strong leaders like if you want to be a strong coach strong leader i'm a big believer that you've got to have both dense and diverse experience and all that means is I think people have got to get into situations where they can coach all different age groups, types of athletes, all that as early as possible. I mean, think about this, Mark. We talk about, you know, the danger of early specialization for athletes, yet coaches want to specialize early. So many guys get into it and they're like, I only want to work with NBA basketball players. I only want to work with Fortune 500 CEOs. I only want to work with NFL guys. I only want to – so, like, when I – I knew when I came out, like, I wanted to get experience in the private side, both at athlete's performance at the time, which is now Exos. And then I also wanted team environment experience, which I did at the University of Nebraska in Southern Illinois. And here's the the point, when I left Nebraska, my graduate assistantship at Southern Illinois, I had a friend that got offered the same role at the University of Georgia. So I was like, oh man, you got a way better job than I, you're gonna be at the SEC, you're gonna be at a huge school, you know, and here I am going to like, you know, what I perceive to be Lowly Division One A, Southern Illinois, and Carbondale. Right. Well, when I got there, the coach that I worked under, Jared Neslin, was nice enough to, you know, give me control over and by the time I had finished, it was over six teams in the Olympic sports. So men's and women's swimming and diving, men's and women's golf, men's and women's tennis, baseball, and then I also helped predominantly with football and basketball. My friend that went to Georgia didn't get to do any lead any teams. As a matter of fact, he was relegated to only basically helping train the offensive linemen and wow. making sure five star recruits got their butt to class. Oh, and man. so, and he's a good, he's a good friend of mine. He wouldn't mind. We joke about this story to this day and he took a lot out of it regardless. But my point being is, it was that experience coaching all those different sports. And then even when I went to API and they were kind enough to trust me with youth groups, high school groups, but also I think the biggest part that I learned is I had to work with what was called um the wounded, um uh, sorry, the Eagle Fund program at the time, mm-hmm. which was military that had came over, you know, special forces operators that had been blown up in one way, shape, or form or another, and had gotten reconstructive surgery and were trying to basically get put back together, get redeployed so they could go back over and get back in the fight. So now all of a sudden, and I think you all appreciate this because I looked at your background. But all of a sudden, all these methods that I thought I'd never use, right? Like, oh, machine based training or oh, I'm not gonna do this. All of a sudden, like when you're working with a guy that's like a double amputee or he's got shrapnel on this part of his hip and he can't do this and that, you use any damn method you can to apply overload. Oh yeah. So I got guys on the ground, manual resistance. I have tubing for some guys, I have full blown weights, clean snatches for some guys, and other guys are relegated to like half machines, half half body weight stuff because of where they're at and they're the, how their bodies, you know, jacked right. up and what issues they have going especially guys with traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm.
3: So mm-hmm.
2: point being get as much experience as you can in a lot of settings because that makes you eat your words so much earlier and right. realize that all this stupid debating people do about what's better, what's best, what's this. Like it's, it's worthless. Right. Do what fits your client that's my piece
0: oh that's wonderful thank you thank you very much um yeah i think coach ryan you know coach ryan horn uh coach yeah yeah, he's a man he's great uh coach horn said uh the way you clean or your program is not a gang sign it's just a different way of doing things remember that great quote
2: yeah and if there's if there's a guy that like i already ever like just say hey ryan let's give it all up and open a business together and like he him and george who you spoke to earlier Those are both guys that, like in my in my dreams, I could get like five people together and put together an Avengers crew where we could all just work under one roof. Those two would be two of them because they are they're just they're they're good dudes and they get it. And it's right. It's like it's not this turf war. Like I saw another article come out the other day about this single leg double leg debate. And really, Mark, you know what I'm starting to learn. And I'm late to the game here. I'm sure you picked this up way sooner than I did. I don't know. Is I'm learning that a lot of people I think are just spinning narratives to kind of rile up our audience. Oh man. I think that I think fewer coaches are actually debating about this. And I think that really there's just some people that, you know, are kind of turning the wheels, trying to, trying to poke, uh, poke pit bulls with a stick and trying to see if they can elicit a response. (laughs) When in reality, you know, there's no issue. And I own yeah.
0: a rescue pit bull, so I know. <laughs> I think you're <laughs> spot on on both points. Uh Firstly, Coach Horn is an incredible human being and an incredible coach. And I sat down with him when he was in Miami at the hotel and talked to him for an hour. He only had an hour free. He gave it to me. So thank you, Coach Horn. He's incredible. And George, I've known for many years. He's just a great guy. He's a great coach, but he's just a great guy who's connected to people and understands. Uh, as you said, he gets it. He certainly gets it. And he's always been nothing but positive. Well, he's a very powerful coach. And I, I regard those two guys, as you said, to be two of the best. You'd have a heck of a uh, Avenger crew there. And the, <laughs> the, the, you yeah. would. And the second piece is, I mean, I think any coach worth this salt understands that you can use anything to apply force or load in, 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 in a positive way, if you understand the mechanics of things. And I mean, I've used anything from you know, a the, as we all have, a PVC pipe to a life fitness machine, it, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, I have to find ways to right. get it done, modify all my movements, and I have to do what I have to do. Just because I'm not doing overhead reverse lunges with a snatch hold over my head doesn't mean that it's a mediocre effort. So, I
2: mean... 100%. And I think that's something that, like, what, what I've learned in this just, like, kind of trying to be more observant, I think a lot of people that get into those debates do so because of that uh, heuristic that Daniel Kahneman talks about. Uh, what is focal is causal. So we have some coaches, and I'm not I'm not um, insulting these coaches. I'm I'm talking about why I think this is the case. I think we have coaches that have worked with one group of athletes for a very long time, mm-hmm. and so they start to develop their own biases off of maybe working 15 years in college football, you know, as opposed to understanding that there's some coaches out there that again have to work with military with traumatic brain injuries. There's coaches out there that have to work with, uh, you know, John and Susie Q that, you know, maybe were competitive athletes and are now lawyers, but still want to train and learn how to do these things appropriately. Um, or high school athletes that, you know, heaven, like out here in Georgia, baseball's crazy. You have teenagers that have had Tommy John surgery. And so wow. I just think it's really, it's really an issue when coaches that are highly respected and have a lot of voice, get out and start speaking in absolutes because they're not, they're not wrong. I think sometimes you're probably just not as aware that the audience now in our field is so diverse. We're not just a bunch of college strength coaches or, uh, you know, college baseball, baseball strength coaches. I mean, uh, pro strength coaches. Like it's, it's everything. And that goes on the private side too. There's private sector guys that, you know, they may have four hours to train guys and they're stating their training views. But they, they forget that there's high school strength coaches that have 60 minutes or less to coach kids. Right. I think high school strength coaches is where 90% of people need to be you know, focusing on right now. We need more good high school strength coaches. And there's I think it's the NHS SCA, Gary Schofield, um, uh, uh, Fred Eves, and, and a bunch of other coaches that have done great work promoting. But if you're a strength coach listening and you're wondering like, you know, where can I find more opportunities? I'm stuck, whatever. Like, get into high school, strength making condition. You can make good money, which there's nothing wrong with that. You have to pay your bills. Right. You can work with kids that really, really need some help. And I just don't think enough respect is given to the community. hmm.
0: hmm. I, I agree. I mean, that's, you know, our best, you know, kids, children, uh, kids coming through the middle school and high school programs. There, there are. Top resource for fueling all of these sports, and I think it's the hardest level to teach. I really do because yeah, they have so totally much energy and so much fuel, and they're ready to go. But you know, you have to be very careful because they're raw, they're raw products, and they're people, and they're coming in, and they 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 don't understand what's being taught. But as soon as you program to do those specific movements, that's a pattern that's going to stay for a long time. So. I think yep. they're the hardest ones to coach without a doubt. But they they as you said, coach, they they appreciate it more than anything. Could,
3: yeah, oh hundred percent.
0: Coach, um, could you talk about this is gonna ducktail into um, uh, the buy in, but you know, we you, you you're big on the buy in and getting an athlete to buy in by building trust and it's that relationship that you form with the person you're working with, the athlete, the client. There's a thin line between getting close enough to your client to getting them to buy in. But distancing yourself, yes. distancing, distancing. Excuse me, yourself enough where you maintain that coach versus athlete relationship. How is that done? I mean, it's almost like a dance, if you will.
2: Yeah, I think it is this balance of, and again, it kind of goes back to what I post posted on my Instagram the other day. As a coach, you have to draw. There's a spectrum, right? On one end is empathy, on another end is apathy, and then in the middle is what, what is just compassion and. So empathy is I feel what you feel, right? Like you're so close to the situation that like uh, you're almost too wrapped up in it. I mean, think about that. If somebody comes to you stressed out to solve a problem, the last thing they want you to be is stressed out. (laughs) You're Mm -hmm. trying to help them solve it. So you don't want to be a reflection of what they are. What you want to do is you want to show understanding. And so compassion is I understand what you feel. It's kind of this academic you know, if, if you ever turn something in late to a teacher and you're like, oh, I'm sorry this happened, that, they may say, well, I'm sorry to hear that, uh, but the expectations were you still needed to hand this in on time.
3: Right. You know, a surgeon
2: right. may see a trauma, a, a surgeon may see somebody come into the ER, a stabbing victim, and they may think, oh my gosh, this is awful. But at the same time, if that's all the surgeon focuses on, how are they ever supposed to do their job, right? right? And so they have this kind of cold, it seems cold, but really it's this kind of clinical compassion that says, I understand the magnitude and the significance of whatever's going on here, but I can also step back from it emotionally and, and make make a decision. And I think that's the sweet spot in which coaches need to operate, especially in the complexity of uh, of this field. So I'll give you an example, right? I had worked with an athlete that had seen one of his parents killed, like literally had seen that. Now, I've never seen that. And so for me to try to relate to that athlete would be, an intense and dramatic insult to that individual, you know, like there's no way I'm going to come with that and be like, Hey, I watched this documentary once. I know it can be hard if you need somebody to talk to. No, like in my older brother, my older brother got stabbed when I was interning at athletes performance in 2000, I think it was 2008. Mm -hmm. Um, No, no, it was right after. Yeah, it would have been around 2008. My older brother was stabbed. So even though there's something there that I could talk to that guy about, Like, I'm not leading with that. Like, this is an individual that has seen something in which nobody should ever have to witness. And so, you know, with that, how you apply compassion is when you see somebody like that and he was a little detached, you know, it just never seemed like he was interested. It never seemed like he was bought in with what we were doing. It's so easy for strength coaches to be like, oh, that's Neil, and this isn't his real name. That's Neil. Like, he's soft. He doesn't like the weight room or, like, he's not a team guy. When in reality, like, this dude, like,
3: he just—can
2: you imagine seeing that and what that would do to you? And so, uh, you know, for him, he was a guy that you could never fight fire with fire. Like, I just spent a lot of time trying to build a relationship. Never asked him anything about his parents, very little about his upbringing. I just kind of asked him why he got into sport, you know, what like what he likes about it, what he'd do if he wasn't playing the game, like just small stuff. Right. And I'm—I'm going to say this real quick because there's some coaches that are like, "Well, I don't have time to do that." Like, guys, this isn't like—I didn't take these this guy for an hour and take him to a coffee shop this is just shit that you talk about and why they're rolling out hey man how you feeling today what'd you do this weekend yada 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 you know just come up with a discussion point and in between rest periods or whatever make small talk you know it's just kind of small little snippets it's not going to get you off track and and not only that like you're going to meet with your athletes to go over goals sometimes throughout the season or throughout the session so why would you not you know try to try to make them feel a little bit more comfortable um, I hate to use this term because somebody will take it and probably run with it, <laughs> use it irresponsibly, but to a degree, Mark, it is a little bit like seduction. Right. You know, you have to get people to lower their guard. You have to see them. You, ha- you have to help them understand that, like, we we want the same thing. I'm trying to be respectful of your boundaries, but at the same time, you know, I'm trying to help you see kind of what we could work towards here. Right. And, you, and you just build off that. But to your point, it requires tremendous patience. And it can't be done with a tablet, so people get pissed.
0: Oh yeah, I, I, I've worked, um, I've worked at places, and I've been around coaches, and they, you know, I, I said this is really important to that athlete, and their response was, "I'm not a, I'm not a blank therapist." And I would say, "Yeah, yeah you are." Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as a, Did you just say, "Yeah, you are"? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You are. Yeah, as a coach, your
2: job is to alter behavior and manage stress, physiological stress. Now, I've had that too. I had somebody get on me and say, you're not a PhD, you have no business writing a book like this, and your book is dangerous, and I thought about that, and I'm like, huh, like, it's not like I'm writing the DSM-5 here where I'm trying to clinically diagnose anybody. I'm sharing my experiences as a coach, and I'm also talking about what behavioral science tends to say about what makes people react or respond the way they do. Mm -hmm. Now, sure, if I had written some book that says, You should clinically diagnose this person as insane. You should diagnose this person as depressed. That is so far out of the scope of practice and irresponsible. But that's not what the book is about. You know, for as long as coaches deal with individuals, people direct, they absolutely better study psychology just as much as they study biomechanics and physiology. You're not dealing with a Toyota camera. You're dealing with a thinking, breathing, feeling machine. Why would you not? You know?
0: Yeah, you're a million percent spot on. And I remember when I was in college, the most influential, I'd probably say the most, one of the most, if not the most influential man in my life. I remember I was in his office. uh, He was a football coach. And behind his desk, uh, Coach Brett was a pack, a high stack of books. And none of them had anything to do with sports or football. They were all uh, behavioral and psychology books. And one day I asked him, I said, and this was... I don't know, long time ago, I don't I don't wanna, Don't want to. make me say the years. But anyway, I said, well, coach, why are all those books uh, behind your desk? Uh, why are you studying psychology? And he said, Mark, uh, what we do here, it's all psychology and it's all behavior and it's all dealing with different personality types. And he told me, this was a 54-year-old man, he told me, uh, I don't do very well with different personalities and I'm trying to learn. He was 54 years old and he had coached for it's not like maybe easy. 30 years. It's not.
2: Yeah, it's not easy. And here's here's the thing, like, to your point, and and I have to make a quick disclaimer here because otherwise these narratives get off track, but people, there are some people that are very uncomfortable with this conversation of behavior coming to the forefront of what we do. You know, talking about the importance of human behavior in coaching does not mitigate, you know, or, or even, like, militate against the importance of training. Like, nobody is suggesting that we quit looking at, uh, force velocity profiling or the benefits of maximal strength or any of this stuff. Nobody's saying quit studying that. We're just saying, also understand that balanced coach development is about knowing the art of coaching as well. So I just, you know, I'm stating that. And then to your point about it not being easy, I had a good talk with a strength coach of an NBA team the other day. And he's like, you know, I don't know, man, like everybody's reading these books on psychology and whatever he goes. I just think that, you know, physiology and biomechanics is a lot harder and I think coaches are gravitating to a lot of these leadership books because that other stuff's harder and I just said you know what like I respect your opinion and I do he's a great guy Right. I'm like but I disagree I go if you think for a minute that this stuff is easy then we need to tell every university around the world to shut down their sociology psychology behavioral economics program I mean you have you have a professor at Oxford that is one of the most well-known in the world at studying abnormal psychology. You have people that won the Nobel prize for studying behavioral economics. You don't win the Nobel prize for researching things that are easy, right, you know? And so right. I just think coaches have to be really careful and, and understand that there's nothing to get defensive about. Nobody's attacking you. If you liked it, like when I first started, I was a periodization and program design junkie. I still am. I love that stuff. i just never ran into a situation in which that was the utmost limiting factor of what we did.
3: Right, like, I don't
2: have athletes that all of them can squat two and a half times body weight, deadlift two and a half times body weight, clean all that. Like you know, those. But we we still have coaches out there that may have athletes that can clean one point four times their body weight, and this is irrespective. Like let's just use a male example here: can squat two times their body weight, deadlift two times their body weight, and they're still just chasing strength. You know, but that athlete may not like. It's about what transfers to the field. And that that is a sociological perspective we need to take as much as a physiological. Like there's just there's two sides of the coin. That shouldn't be an right. argument. Right. The minute we start working with robots, make that argument.
0: Right. And it's just, I think admitting that, that we have weak spots in in our coaching styles, and co- co- not coaching styles, coaching ability, coaching experience, and there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I'm not very good at that, I really need to work on that, but then taking the steps to actually do that. What are you doing to improve? Like what, what uh, protocols or what systems, what books, what classes, what um, uh, circles are you putting yourself into to make those improvements? I just don't get a lot of coaches openly admit to uh, not being strong in one aspect of coaching or working with people?
2: Yeah, 100%. And you've seen, and you've seen a lot. You know, you've seen more than most. I've, and that's a big part of what I'm doing with the online course that comes out March 7th is we're putting a coaching and session evaluation form in there. Because to their defense, coaches, none of us have really had many resources that help us critically evaluate our coaching style, both in the short term and over the long term. Yet we're often told that there's this ideal coaching style, which of course isn't the case. You've had guys like John Wooden who taught people how to put on their socks in their first practice,
3: Oh, I remember. you've had
2: people, and you've had people like Bobby Knight who have choked kids and thrown chairs. And you know what? Both have won championships. And it's not there's this discussion isn't like back squat, front squat, what's better, what's worse. This discussion is about understanding the spectrum and sociological aspects of what goes into why both of those uh coaching styles might be successful Mm -hmm. and again that's why i call it periodization for people it's understanding just like you have to understand what rep range to call upon for a certain adaptation here we need to know what coaching style what communication tactic what influence behavior and that's what the course is going to dive into It's saying hey there are tactics for communication just like there are for training i'm not saying i have all the answers but here is six years of combing through a lot of research what What it shows and what I want, Mark, I want to make this clear. I I want this conversation. I hope somebody else comes out with other stuff. I hope somebody, the point of this course in the book is not to stake my claim as the utmost authority in this. It's to spark a dialogue. I want more coaches getting involved with this. So hopefully people that see the course and all this, they understand that And it's pretty uncomfortable for me. I mean, because. Uh, anytime you have to promote something that's out of a coach's wheelhouse, as I'm sure you know from the podcast, right? Like we're often taught it's wrong to promote and do this. But when you have a resource out there that you think can help, like I think this can, I'm going to put it out there. I want want your guys' feedback on it. So hopefully it helps provide coaches with some of those evaluative tools and assessment-based outcomes.
0: Right. Right, absolutely, and you're 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 giving back. You're giving something that's going to help other people and add to their game and add to their base of knowledge. So I look at it as most positive thing in the world. So thank you for doing that. No, um, thank you.
3: Appreciate
0: it. One of my most uh, I know you we're running short on time, and I don't want to be a uh, monopolize. No, you're time. fine. You're
2: asking some great questions. I still got some time. So oh, go I ahead.
0: appreciate it. Thank you so much. One one of the things that yeah, quotes that you put out there is one of my favorites by far. Uh, one clear sign, oh, excuse me, one clear indicator that you're made for this field. You said, you're never satisfied with, with your own work, and you understand that it's not about you. Can you get into that? I, I know what my thoughts are, but I just want to uh, give this to the listeners and have them understand what both of those statements are about.
2: Yeah, I might need you to repeat it, and as you know, I kind of go on, I, I know, <laughs> I, I go on rants a little no, bit. No, that's fine, that's fine. I Absolutely. Yeah, so would so, you mind repeating? Yeah. That? Of course. The, I couldn't hear part of it
0: either. The first part is um, one clear indicator that you made for this field. You're never satisfied with your own work, and you understand oh, yeah, it's yep. not about you.
2: Okay. Yeah. So I remember. Sometimes I always have to think about like where I was on that day too, because that influences it. Right. Um, somebody. So for me, I am very, very, very much so never impressed with myself. Um, sometimes that can i'll be full fully up front like sometimes that' takes me to a dark place like i you know the book the book was warmly received i don't feel like it was good enough you know i did this i didn't feel like it was good enough an athlete might hit a pr i wondered if i could have helped them get there a bit earlier or if i could have kept those um you know the the effects from that if i could have prolonged them uh, i'm just somebody that I, my whole life i've kind of felt like this underdog that I'm never satisfied with my own work. I'm, I'm never meet my own expectations. And none of those were like put on me by my mother or my father or really anybody. Like I think, I think a lot of it boiled down to like when I was in the hospital, like it, it, I very much came closer to losing my life. And so I had this idea that I put into my own head of all these things I wanted to accomplish in terms of just like uh, what one author calls a dying empty. Like I feel like it's an insult if you don't give a lot you know or or try to reach your potential and it's tricky because that's impossible for any of us right like i don't think any of us really reach our potential because i don't think any of us know what that is but that's always been my number one fear and driver before i get put into the dirt so no matter what like I, i just think you know never believe your own height because there's somebody out there doing something just as good probably better uh, you didn't invent something, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, except for when we go to Mars, hopefully in our lifetime. Um, and yeah, I think it's just that. It's this idea that you're a craft, like Hemingway, this is in the book, right? Hemingway says it best, we're all apprentices in a craft in which we will never become a master. And like, uh, if if it was relevant, I'd almost have that put on my tombstone. But I think some people would be like, well, I don't get it. Who was this guy? Um, but that's, (laughs) that's the piece there. And then it's not about you. This is tricky because I've had to learn a lot over the past year or two. So what that means in essence is like, you can't be so caught up in your own ego and your own agenda and, and being right and all that. It's not about that. It's about contributing to a dialogue and a discourse that lasts the length of your career, you know, and then some, it's just about like, quit, quit worrying about like have strong beliefs. But make sure that they're loosely held. Like, mm-hmm. don't, there are so many things that I thought I knew and I believed in, and still to this day that I, you know, I'm continuing to learn that I'm like, oh, that was embarrassing. Now, that being said, you do have to believe in your work. You know, you do have to stand by your work. I mean, I had an athlete before I ever got on social media, because I never wanted to be visible like that. It was just kind of inculcated in me that, oh, social media is for frauds, this, that, whatever. That's just kind of how it was when I came out. Um, I remember I had an athlete and he asked me, he goes, Hey man, are you on Twitter? And I said, no. And he goes, why not? And I go, real strength coaches don't get on social media. And he said, oh, well, I hear you like giving tips to your interns and other coaches. Like, why would you not share that with other people? You don't think they could benefit from that? And I guess I had never thought about that before. Right. And Mm -hmm. so I was like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, I don't think anybody gives a shit what I have to say. Pardon my (laughs) language. I'm just trying to speak honestly. And he says, he goes, well, I think you're wrong. And I think that you might just want to put some stuff out there. Of course, not everybody's going to like it, but see what happens. So right. like, all right. So that was kind of what I base and still to this day base my social media off of. I just try to say things that I wish other people would have told me, especially because right. I didn't have a direct mentor. Right. Um, so it does need to like, it, it shouldn't, your actions in general should not be about you. But that being said, you should not discredit yourself. You should not think you're not worthy or that nobody has. I had somebody the other day that said, I don't think I should get on Twitter because I'm not an expert. And I go, dude, the majority of Twitter users are probably 13-year-old kids in a video game chair mashing their Madden controller to death. (laughs) Do you think you need to be an expert to get on Twitter?
0: I mean, if that were the case, there'd be no Twitter. So,
2: 100%. And so, but that's what we've done, right? We've grown this watchdog kind of troll community that sadly has made coaches feel like, you know, they better be a PhD in this, or they better be the head of a football club, or they better be this to share. No, like I'm not above learning from an intern. And I'll say that proudly. I'm, I'm still not above learning from an intern. And I would hope that other people feel that way as well. So that's, it's kind of a dual-edged sword, but that's what I mean by that quote, if that drives more clarity.
0: Oh, absolutely. That was terrific terrific uh, summary. You know, I often tell uh, our team, I said, i got to bring people in that are way smarter than me. I'm like, I, I think I know a little bit, but compared to the people I bring in, I don't know anything. I'm trying to learn from well, them. Well,
2: here's the thing. It's a council, too, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not about this, like, man-on-the-hill kind of guru thing, like... Coaching is done best when it's done, like, via counsel, when you have people to sit and discuss complicated and complex problems with. So having people around you isn't about learning some esoteric secret as much as it is kind of sometimes being reminded of stuff. Like, one time I was leading an athlete, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think I was leading them through. uh, We didn't have a piece of equipment, and I had a part of the program that I really wanted to adhere to closely, so I didn't want to just modify it with anything. And I was like, man, what are we going to do here? And, and one of the interns was like, why don't you do what you did with this group or whatever? And I was like, oh, like that hadn't came to me right there because I was thinking of a million other things. Right. And just having that reminder, like that's recall is learning too. And that seems like a silly example, but you'd be surprised every year I go back into old programs and, you know, not only to compare my work, you know, now, but I also go back into old programs so that i can continue to see what i did what worked and be reminded of of some different things does that does that make
0: sense yeah absolutely that makes perfect sense and you know i I think there should be as you said there should be more of that and and i take that to social media i'm not going to sit here and tell you i don't like social media there was a time i didn't like social media but i appreciate it more now because i get to touch or uh get in touch with communicate with people from all over the world and i've worked with people. I've helped people. They've helped me. I've worked through problems. I've helped them work through uh, adversity in their life. And it's just, it's, it's been a wonderful connect. And I, I view social media to be, uh, I heard this once, I think in a movie, or oh, Bill Cosby said it on stage in a, uh, I know he's going through a difficult time, but he went through a difficult time, but it's neither here nor there. He said, drugs make you more of what you already are. Social media makes you more <laughs> of what you already are. If you're a great coach- yep. I mean, you can see that. I can see that in your Instagram. I can see that in the things you can say. I can tell how you're mindful of your the, the words that you you post and the things that come out of your mouth and they're thoughtful and they come from a personal experience. I try to do the same thing with my social media. I only speak about the things well, that I've experienced. I'm sorry.
2: And it's appreciated. No, no, you're it's appreciated. I mean I think we live in a loud society right now where, people don't understand the difference between insight and opinion Mm -hmm. and they're both, they're both okay in their own right. But like, don't give your opinion. If you're also not willing to provide some kind of solution or insight or at least expand the dialogue. And you're doing that all the time with your podcast, every question you ask, every time you, I mean, your, your listeners probably don't know this, but when you reached out, like the way in which you reached out, just thoughtful, respectful, clear, concise to the point you'd be surprised at how many people reach out. And it's certainly not just me, but other coaches talk about this. And they're basically just like, you know, here's my podcast. Here's why it's great. You know, pushy, pushy, pushy. And it's like, Whoa, dude, like this should be about a discussion. And I think that that's kind of what social media needs to like, look at it as a discussion. And it's not, here's the other thing. It's not going anywhere. So don't, don't be, don't say you're a lifelong learner and it's all about adapting and and this and that. But then you're like, you're going to cry about social media just find a platform. And and it's not, it's not all for everybody. Like I'm very inactive on Facebook now and I'll, I'll get on there and reply or make sure I let people know I appreciate some if they've reached out. But like Instagram is kind of where I'm most focused. And there's a reason for that. I'm a coach. And so it's easy for me to get out and say little things, but like, I'd rather have you see it. On right. Instagram, you can actually see it, right? Like you can see my training or you can see a picture that I think um, uh, resonates with a certain insight. And I think that that's, That's something coaches need to be aware of, even if you're against social media or what have you, or if you're against like things like Instagram, which I was. But if you're an educator, we need the visual as much as we need anything else. And so it's a good tool. You just got to find your way of using it. And I, I don't think that's hard. Just don't follow the leader. Put blinders on and say, okay, what do I think is useful? And the nice thing is, is I guarantee you, you have an audience for that. Even if you're somebody that is only interested in, uh, I don't know barbell training like that's your only interest. Everything classic, just barbell training oriented. You mm-hmm. can find somebody for that. Somebody that just loves focusing on ankle mobility. There's somebody to do, just stick stick with whatever you want to focus on, and that's helpful to someone.
0: A million percent, it, it's so helpful, and then it, this the social media world has become a great resource for learning things and expanding your knowledge. So uh, I do appreciate. You just gotta it
2: filter now. it. I mean. I will say that, like, you can, it can get easy, you know, sometimes where I'm eating lunch in between groups, I'll check it, and I catch myself feeling obligated to respond um, to every DM, which I just, you know, you can't do. Oh, my goodness. Um, but, but, like, you try to you try to do it as much as you can because you want people to know you appreciate it. So, you do have to put a filter on it. Like, I try to, with my wife and I, I try to say, hey, after 9 p.m., I'm not doing social media. Or after 8 p.m., I'm not, you know, I'm trying to check it once a day. I'm trying to do you know, whatever I can to kind of isolate it. So mm-hmm. if you are listening to this and I don't get back to you, it's, I promise I'm not ignoring you. I'm just trying to be respectful to, <laughs> to my family and everything else.
0: Right. Which is a healthy thing. So thank goodness you're doing that. Coach. Uh, I have a few questions for you. Uh, speed round of questions that just helps the audience get to know you a little bit. This has been absolutely wonderful. Um, you can give a one word answer, one sentence, whatever you'd like, and it's going to help the audience get to know you. And then I want to ask about your program. Um, and then I'll let you off the hook. So, um, here we go. Cool. Coach, what is your favorite ritual?
2: Uh, for anything?
0: Yeah, sure. Favorite ritual that you just man, I love doing this. Aside from weights, lifting weights and training. Can't you can't use that one?
2: Okay, so nothing nothing uh, activity related or anything like yeah, that. Yeah,
0: something else.
2: Yeah, I'll say this. I mean, I I love walking the dogs. You know, I think that like walking is such a it's a time where I can kind of get get locked down and and think and just kind of like be out in nature and turn off for a minute. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think, I think that, and then I just think, um, you know, before I go to bed at night, like I go through kind of, you'd kind of call it a prayer. And that's something that just kind of helps me reflect. And like, it's not, it's not mindfulness meditation. I don't know that I, for me, like, that's my thing, but I I definitely, I guess you could consider it a bit of that just being able to reflect and go through everything that I want to work on that I'm thankful for and making sure that like, you know, it's just known that I don't take any of it, any of it for granted. But if I had to do one, one answer, it'd probably just be, you know, being sure to, to walk the dogs or take a 10 minute walk somewhere, uh, every day.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, so, uh, last book read.
2: Uh, well, uh, like the current one, I'm reading two books right now. I'm, I'm finishing the undoing project. Um, I'm fitting. And then, uh, the last one I read was how to think like Sherlock Holmes.
0: Wow. Good book.
2: Yeah, interesting. Interesting perspective. Just teaches you the... Uh, it's, it's one that I'd, I'd definitely read again, so I'd recommend it.
0: Understood. Uh, favorite athlete? Of all, it could be all-time, current, whatever you like.
2: That's easy. Ken Griffey Jr., Seattle Mariners.
0: Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, I, I skipped it, I'm sorry. Your favorite book of all-time, aside from Conscious Coaching?
2: Yeah, people aren't going to like this answer, cause, but there's something that goes behind it. I would say 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene.
0: Ooh, it's a good one. Favorite? Yeah, I'm a, note- bi- I'm
2: a big history, history and strategy. I love.
0: Nice. Uh, I noticed your Instagram has a lot of uh, posts about movies. Favorite movie of all time?
2: Huh. Uh, it's always going to be context dependent, but either Cinderella Man or Man on Fire.
0: Man on Fire. Nice. I,
2: you know, I would say this too. Let's scratch Cinderella Man, go the Hurricane. So I'm actually doubling down on Denzel. Wow. Um. The, the hurricane, because I remember when I had left that, I saw that with my mother at 14 and I got out and I thought, what have I done with like, like, I, I, I think that was the first time I felt like I need to do something with my life. right and I was 14 wow. um, because I mean, if anybody hasn't seen it, I mean, man was wrongfully imprisoned because Oof. of racial type stuff. Um, and then while in jail wrote a book and a young kid happened to find his book literally at a book sale, be living with some Canadian citizens who together they all hired a lawyer and worked together to spring this guy out of prison. I mean, it's unbelievable. It is the unbelievable. Best, yeah, it's a so I'll, movie. I'll say The Hurricane, spot on.
0: Yeah, forget about a movie, it's a great, it's a real life story. <laughs> it's a, incredible. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, okay, uh, I missed this one. Favorite type of music?
2: Uh, I'm a hip-hop head, and I don't mean rap. I mean like good hip-hop like Nas, Jay-Z, Biggie, Eminem, Big L, You know people like that. I'm not really into I try to be open-minded to what goes on today And I like guys like Kendrick Lamar and okay. I think Drake has some more staying power, but I really like classic classic hip-hop.
0: How old are you coach?
2: I'm 32.
0: Oh, 30. oh, good. 32. I was gonna say you're giving away your age if you're a little bit older You're a classic Biggie, Tupac, Nas guy that's uh, that's kind of yeah like I just my like well. I think they, I
2: think they told stories you know and yeah. I think like rhyme and rhythm and stuff like that is and it was just competitive you know yeah. like now it seems like rap is all about like drugs and whatever back right. then like I used to love when rappers would kind of just go at each other and see who could spit like that's craftsmanship yeah. I think that's a little bit of coaching too like every coach is quietly competitive about their skill set
0: oh yeah they they want to do well they want to be recognized for having a, a, a big base I love when they would go back and forth on stage it was awesome uh, uh, yeah. uh, your favorite strength coach uh, and this could kind of be paired with the next one which is mentor of yours
2: yeah I so I had some again I didn't really have an early mentor um, anything like that I've had people that of course inspired me along the way both to be good and bad examples um, or I mean not inspired me to be those examples given me examples to kind of be clear of I'd say somebody that I really just appreciate a lot now um, and there's two of them are, you know, uh, Dan Paff and Stu McMillan. You know, Dan, these were guys that when I was working at Exos, they'd they'd kind of, they'd be coaching at the same time I was. And uh, I'd have my group out there, and they'd watch me critically. And these are guys that are, you know, have been in the game a very, very long time. And so, you know, I was confident in what I was doing, but I was also kind of wondering, what do these guys think? Um, That went on for a series of months. And then I remember, like, I worked up the courage to go talk to Dan Paff and he was just really complimentary and said it's nice to see somebody, you know, focusing on fundamentals and focusing on coaching as opposed to like gadgetry and all that. Mm-hmm. And that really struck up a conversation, which is why he, you know, uh, you, which is why he was a co-author in the introduction of the book. Um, and then Stu is just somebody that like has he's got this incredible, it's like an informed attitude, but he also tells you just like screw what other people think and follow this and. I confided in him early on because I was just really hesitant about becoming more visible, you know, to the point where I am now, where again I have a course and a book and all this. Like, and he just said, you know what, man? Like, you could go, you could go be the head strength coach for a, a team that wins a Super Bowl, and people are going to chide you about the three guys that pulled their hamstrings preseason. Mm. He's like, you go win a gold medal, and somebody's going to say this. He's like, just go, like, do something helpful. And I think hearing those guys say that, that have been in the game so long. Um, it, you know, was was a huge was a great thing to hear because my whole life I had just been around people that said, hey man, the minute you the minute you start putting yourself out there, you're not one of us anymore. You're not in the trenches, and I'm just like, why why can't a coach, like coach and also be visible and try to be have a more active... I just I don't think that's sustainable in 21st century like part of our field. I mean, you have Navy Seals now that get out of the force and write a book. Like, right. are they not Navy Seals anymore? Right. Like, why can not a coach not so I just, and I respect Ron McKee for what he's done for that too, like with his CEO's train coach, and just saying like, hey, adapt your way of thinking. Otherwise, you're going to be left in the dust.
0: That's a, that's a great quote, that we, which is our next. What, what is your favorite quote?
2: Yeah, real simple. When your values are clear to you, making decisions becomes easier by Roy Disney. Uh, and I think that's uh, just something that I'll repeat it when, when, When your values are clear to you, making decisions becomes easier. And I think every tough decision you have, you have to think not what's the opportunity or what's the consequence, but what are my values? What do I value? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's a big piece. Like my Midwestern roots and being a Nebraskan is very, very central to like the decisions that I make and the way I try to go about doing what I do. Like Nebraskans are not flashy if you remember them in the nineties, the football team, right. It was kind of Tom Osborne, the legendary coach, when said that the way we play football is going to be reflective of the work ethic and character of the people in the state. Wow. And that was just put your hand down in the dirt and plod forward. And some of your listeners may be too young to remember. Um, but you know, that's, that's a dynasty that hasn't even been surpassed by Alabama, no. you know, in terms no. of going 60 and three in the nineties, like, We'll never see that again, and it was not any special formula. It was just like humility, but also constant pressure and perseverance and believing what they did was, was the right way to do
0: it. No, they were special. I, I played I played at the time uh, when they still had the hula bowl with some of the offensive linemen. Um, the college all-star game, the hula bowl in Hawaii, with some of the offensive linemen from uh, in the late 90s in the 99 uh, hula bowl game, and they were tough hard-working, very talented football players, and I just got along great with those guys. And later on, um, God rest his soul, I, I I played with Lawrence Phillips in the CFL. Who was oh, actually, that's awesome. He was a uh, – honestly, I know LP had, his, had things going on in his life and his, his hurdles, but one-on-one as a teammate, I'm telling you, that dude was incredible, man. I had some great times with him. Oh, I
2: believe it.
0: He was a great dude, man. I'm
2: ho- I'm, I'm hoping Scott Frost can – I mean, no Nebraska right. is – thinking that we're going to be what we were in the 90s but I'm, I'm sure hoping in the next five years he makes it competitive again we couldn't be more happy to have a guy like that exactly yeah. it's funny like uh, it just i still resonate so heavily with my time there even though i don't live there but that's, oh, that's kind special. of the interesting
0: thing about roots right 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 Hats off to scott frost i was with him with the new york jets and i was so just impressed that he was a quarterback now he was a safety for the new york jets it blew my mind I was like this guy's incredible (laughs) it was crazy and by the way he is not small he is not a little guy um
3: yeah
0: so coach please plug before we get off plug uh your program i want to hear all about it i want the listeners to know all about it your program is coming out soon tell us about it
3: yeah
2: i'll keep it simple so artofcoaching.com not the art of coaching but artofcoaching.com is going to be kind of my primary hub for where i put all these resources so my book um, the free field guide that kind of puts everything together. And then most importantly, uh, the online course, which I've spent over a year developing, it's called bought in, it comes out March 7th. Um, you know, on my Instagram, I put all these details. So don't worry about kind of writing them down or rewinding. You can just follow or go to at coach underscore Brett B and see it. Um, but the course is going to be a five week course divided into two parts. So the science and application of the art of coaching. In the first part, I guide everybody through kind of a unifying theory that I've been working on developing, which is aimed at driving improved behavioral outcomes with athletes, clients, colleagues, and sport coaches. Because, as you know, it's not uncommon for coaches to kind of say, hey, like, I have my program, but, you know, the head swimming coach or whatever wants to do this and that. They want to do, you know, all these other things. What do I do? Um, And then in four modules, uh, after that first part that's all about the science of behavior and, and human nature, we're gonna break them up as follows. So the first one is understanding social dynamics, kind of what goes into conflict, conflict resolution, uh, what role um, that like the words and metaphors, analogies and cues you use have in performance, critical evaluation of yourself as a coach and the coaching styles you use. So we have all these ways to kind of look into the Dunning-Kruger effect, um, evaluating kind of the myth of the perfect coaching style, um, pieces like that. And then also understanding how to better leverage uh, aspects of human nature. So again, taking why we drive this, why we make certain decisions, and and knowing what's that based off of. Is it based off um, environment? Is it based off social factors like peers? Is it based off of what are called drives, which are innate kind of subconscious things that that drive our conscious behaviors? Um, and then understanding how that can help us use different communication and influence strategies which helps you guide your athletes your clients and then finally on uh, the second part is going to be all practicalities of uh, applying the science so like you know I, I try to be really transparent in sharing my advice struggles tips stories there's practical exercises for everybody to do and there's PDFs that accompany those exercises um, there's homework uh, we're putting together a Facebook group in which there's going to be like actual live dialogue and um, A's, all those pieces and then there's there's a lot of bonuses coming like things like uh, guiding how to coach men and women differently how to deal with difficult athletes That's
3: um, like
2: I said a coach assessment yeah coach assessment form that you can fill out either after a session and you can review at the end of the year you can do it quarterly it's just all these things that help coaches become a little bit more introspective and and lining all those things up so if anybody's interested like you can get a free uh, literally a free 12 minute video from the course at artofcoaching.com It gets you right onto the wait list. You see what the course is. This is not me talking over a PowerPoint. This is actually something like I invested in a camera crew, all this stuff that I've never done and felt really uncomfortable with. Um, But if you go to artofcoaching.com, you can get a free sample of it and check it out.
0: That's going to be amazing. Uh, Thank you so much for creating that thank you for the book because the book has made its rounds and it will continue to stick around for many many years decades to come i love it i hope so thank you coach it's awesome it's awesome and thanks for making time uh coach brett's a a very busy man as we all are but he was kind enough uh to be on the show and make time and i think this has been a really special hour plus so thank you for your time coach you're the man
2: No, thank you. Thank you. You set me up with a great question,
3: Mark. Take care of yourself.
0: All right. You stay connected, my friend, and have an amazing week. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.
3: You too.